0: Welcome to Sober Discussions. This is Steve and Mike, and sometimes you just need to take out the trash. Hello, and welcome to Sober Discussions. Today we'll be covering some quick links of current events, an honorable mention of Groundhog Day. Uh, Once we cover that, we'll be on some more heavier topics, executive orders, filibusters, and reconciliation. So let's spin this up. Uh, So to better utilize our time, I did find some current events I thought were worth sharing. I didn't want to spend our time on it, though, but we do have them available on our blog. This includes 2021 World and U.S. Events, GameStop Hedge Funds, and the Reddit Stock Craze, and Elon Musk's Neuralink Monkey that can play video games with his mind, which I thought was kind of crazy. You just said that a couple of days ago. Have you seen anything about that?
1: No, I I hadn't heard of it until you said something. Yeah, so that's
0: kind of silly, but... I uh, didn't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. Let's uh, let's go down to our next segment here. So uh, since yesterday was Groundhog Day, I wanted to do a quick honorable mention. Uh, we'll include the bulk of the information uh, with our current events, but uh, here are some quick facts in honor of Groundhog Day tradition. So I'll start off. Why is Groundhog Day important? Groundhog Day has its roots in the ancient Christian tradition of Candle Mass, when clergy would bless and distribute candles needed for winter. The candles represented how long and cold the winter would be. Germans expanded on this concept by selecting an animal, the hedgehog, as a
1: means of predicting the weather. How does Groundhog Day work? Every February 2nd since 1887, a groundhog in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania has made his weather prediction based on the appearance of the sun. Either it's sunny and he sees a shadow, which in folklore means six more weeks of winter, or it's cloudy and the groundhog doesn't see a shadow, meaning an early spring.
0: All right, so the real question is, Mike, did the groundhog see a shadow or not, right? So uh, six weeks of winter as Phil sees his shadow, not even the COVID-19 pandemic nor snow could keep Punxsutawney Phil from getting his job done on Groundhog Day uh, this past Tuesday. Over the 135-year tradition is the 106th time Phil has seen his shadow. So he has seen his shadow. Seems like we're going to have six more weeks of winter, Mike. Which is funny because it
1: was raining.
0: Yeah, (laughs) or snowing or sleet or, you know, whatever the heck's been going on. But I wanted to give an honorable mention. It also had a pretty reasonable uh, Bill Murray film. Groundhog Day. Quite enjoyed so, that one. Yeah, it was pretty good. So I watched it yesterday anyways, wanted to give it an honorable mention. Moving forward, uh, let's jump on to our main segment uh, about executive orders. So I found a pretty good clip I wanted to share uh, from informationstation.org that has a pretty good explanation before we go into more detailed about it, if you can play that for us, Mike.
2: Sometimes on the news, we hear about policies made through executive orders, but what are executive orders, and how do they work? An executive order is a directive handed down from a president or state governor without involvement from the legislative or judicial branches. Executive orders can only be given to federal or state agencies like the Department of Homeland Security or the State Department. Even though executive orders are not mentioned in the Constitution, they've been used by every president since George Washington, and more often during times of war or during national disasters when government policy needs to work more quickly than the traditional legislative process. Sometimes the Supreme Court has stepped in to rein back presidential powers, like when Harry Truman tried to use executive orders to have the government seize America's steel plants in the 50s. Presidents have used executive orders to make policy that circumvents congressional control. In recent years, George W. Bush used executive orders to approve more aggressive surveillance after 9-11, and President Obama has used them for several things, including immigration reform. Some fear that their increased use threatens the long-standing checks and balances set up in the Constitution. In that system, Congress makes the laws. The courts interpret the laws, and the president and executive branch enforces the law. So the next time you hear a president is issuing an executive order, it really means one person is making a decision for 322 million Americans without input from Congress, state legislators, or courts. And it can be just as easily changed by the next president with the stroke of a pen and no input from anyone else. To learn more, go to informationstation.org
0: all right mike any thoughts on that scary yeah it's kind of crazy the good news is right if there's like a silver lining in this is if it's too messed up then it can be reversed including the upcoming president can like remove that so there is that in the works, but like you said, that's a lot of power, for sure.
1: Yeah, it should have to have like some kind of review from somebody, approval. Yeah. <laughs> right. <That's> so crazy.
0: <laughs> so, so that's what I wanted to to share. That I thought it had some really good information. Um, so now that we have a better understanding, uh, let's dig in. I found a helpful article from this, uh, AmericanBar.org. They break down something complicated into three reasonable segments We wanted to... Cover them uh, before we take a look to see what's been
1: happening as of lately. Uh, Mike, if you can read that for us. One of the most common presidential documents in our modern government is an executive order. Every American president has issued at least one, totaling more than 13,731 since George Washington took office in 1789. Media reports of changes made by executive order or executive orders to come rarely explain what the document is or other technical details such as why or how. They seem to be instant law and, at times, steeped into controversy. Here Teaching Legal Docs tries to unpack these sometimes controversial legal documents produced by the executive branch of the U.S. government."
0: Which I think is a pretty reasonable introduction. About what executive orders are. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're going to get into is what is it and what isn't. Uh, so let's start with an executive order is a signed, written, and published directive from the President of the United States that manages operations of the federal government. They are numbered consecutively. So executive orders may be referenced by their assigned number or their topic. Other presidential documents are sometimes similar to executive orders in their format, uh, formality, and issue, but have different purposes. Proclamations, which are also signed and numbered consecutively, communicate information on holidays, which is crazy. Sometimes, Mike, they'll do these um, orders or they'll try to put in like legislature on like Christmas Day, things like that. Kind of crazy. But. Hmm. Anyways, I think more specifically what they're talking about is like how it's going to be like a federal holiday or like how we're going to celebrate it or, you know, commemorate it, things like that. Anyways, uh, federal observations and trade administration orders, memos, notices, letters, messages are not numbered but are still signed and are used to manage administration matters of the federal government. All three types of presidential documents, executive orders, proclamations, and certain administration orders are published in the Federal Register. We'll talk about that. The Daily Journal of the Federal Government is published to inform the public about federal regulations and actions. So that is a federal website on there. They do have it. Uh, They are also cataloged by the National Archives as official documents produced by the federal government. We don't really have a whole lot of easy access on that. Both executive orders and proclamations have the force of law, much like regulations issued by federal agencies. So they are under the Title III of the Code of Federal Regulation, which is the formal collection of all the rules and regulations issued by the executive branch and other federal agencies. Executive orders are not legislation, which I think is important. Uh, They require no approval from Congress, and Congress cannot simply overturn them. Congress may pass legislation that might make it difficult or even impossible to carry out the order, such as removing funding. Only a sitting U.S. president may overturn an existing executive order by issuing another executive order to that effect, which we talked about. So once an executive order happens... It really can't be changed unless the next president was to change that, which I think is kind of crazy.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of power. um, Anyways, Mike, any thoughts on that? So in that last paragraph, it mentions that Congress can try and make it difficult or impossible to carry out an executive order. Right. Um, But, I mean, if a president just waits for an opportunity for Congress to get busy... They might just kind of overlook something, you know, or get paid off, or you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, there it is.
0: Yeah, a lot of gray area. Anyways, I thought that was important to cover. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know, like the, well, including me, like I didn't know. Probably I would say half of it. Um, so I think it was good, uh, including the Federal Register, uh, to to include in that as we as we continue forward. Mike, if you can read that uh, final section for us.
1: The format, substance, and documentation of executive orders has varied across the history of the U.S. presidency. Today, executive orders follow a format and strict documentation system. Typically, the White House issues the order first, then it is published in the Federal Register, the official journal of the federal government. As a more permanent documentation, orders are also recorded under Title Three of the U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, which is simply a codification of the permanent rules issued by the executive branch of U.S. government. Executive orders are numbered. Each order is assigned a number that is unique to the order and, conse- and consecutive in relation to past executive orders. The Department of State began numbering executive orders in 1907 and even worked backward to assign numbers to all of the orders of file since 1862. In 1936, the Federal Register Act put into place the system that is still in use today. Occasionally an executive order that predates the numbering system is still in use today. Occasionally an executive order that predates the numbering system is located, which might result in assigning it a number already in use with a distinguishing letter. As a result, there are actually more total executive orders in existence than the most recent number. There are formatting differences between executive orders released by the White House Press Office those printed in the, regu- in the federal register, those printed under Title Three, or those found in digital archives as HTML text. Regardless of source, however, all formats will include basic components that are central to the executive order document. Those components are outlined below and numbered in the nearby example, which probably won't yeah. look at.
0: Yeah, so essentially, more or less, what we're saying is it has changed over time, right? Uh, the formats aren't exactly 100% the same, but we've numbered it to where it can still be found fairly reasonably if people need to go and take a look at it, etc. etc. right? So, moving on from that, if you did want to look at the current executive orders, I found a helpful link that we'll have on our blog uh, with the executive orders since 1994. I won't bore you to death with it, but it's definitely worth uh, checking out if you're curious. So, Now that we've covered the basics of what an executive order is, I was curious to look at how many executive orders our previous presidents have done throughout the presidency. uh, Coinciding with the federalregister.gov website, I just wanted to rattle off some brief synopsis. Uh, Mike, I think we'll start from Clinton and work our way up to Biden uh, to being current. So that's at the bottom. So we're looking at Clinton. So that's 254 executive orders from 1994 to 2001. Uh, George Bush is two hundred ninety-one executive orders from two thousand one to two thousand nine. Barack Obama is two hundred seventy-six executive orders between two thousand nine and two thousand seventeen. Donald Trump issued two hundred twenty executive orders between twenty seventeen and twenty twenty-one, and Joe Biden issued twenty-five executive
1: orders between twenty twenty-one and obviously twenty twenty-one. So you're, you're telling me it's February third, and he's already issued twenty-five. Yeah,
0: interesting, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if we look back in our
1: previous presidency, 2020,
0: right, now, this is just showing the example of how many executive orders have happened between Biden and Trump. So there were 14 from January 1st, right, to the presidency of the of Biden, yeah, from, from one way to
1: the other, 14 to now 25. So there, so there have been 39 this year. This year. And uh, that's split between Trump and Biden. That's crazy. Right. So it,
0: it's been a lot of executive orders that have happened. I just thought that having awareness uh, was important. Some key executive orders I thought were worth mentioning with
1: our current presidency. Uh, Mike, if you want to uh, look at that real quick with me. Well, that's loading. I, it's interesting because uh, I can see... You know, there could be a good purpose behind having executive orders where if something just needs to happen and it's like some emergency, the president can have the power to do that. But like with this many executive orders, I'm pretty sure most of them are not emergencies and they're just kind of because I can I'm going to do this. Uh, Yeah, well, so that too, and think about it this way, is that if a person
0: feels that that executive order needs to be nullified he's the only person that can remove it right so a lot of it whether you call it damage control or a power grab whichever way you want to go about it that's what a lot of it is but yeah. i wanted to go and and look specifically with the biden administration uh just to name a couple uh, of the ones that have uh, taken place here a couple that i wanted to just uh, mention on so it's reforming our incarceration system to eliminate the use of privately operated criminal detention facilities. So you remember when we talked about those private corporations, right, for the prison systems? Yep. Sounds like we're going to change that, which I thought was important uh, mentioning. There was another one about revocation of certain executive orders concerning federal regulation. That's what we talked about. That was just published on the 25th. So here evoked. folks... Yeah, he It sounds re- like multiple orders. Yeah, it's, there's a two-page document that you can look at, and then there's one more that I wanted to actually briefly talk about, and I am having a terrible time. It's ethics commitments by executive branch. So I'll just give a brief synopsis. By the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America, including Section 301, of title three the united states code in section 3301 and 7301 of title five united states code is hereby ordered to as the following so i'm not going to go huge into it but i did think that it was important just to read this quick uh ethics pledge every appointee in every executive agency appointed on or after january 20th 2021 they're saying like shall sign and upon signing shall be contractually committed to the following pledge upon becoming an appointee. I recognize that the pledge is part of a broader ethics in government plan designed to restore and maintain public trust in government, and I commit myself to conduct consistent with that plan. I commit to decision-making on the merit and exclusively in the public interest without regard to private gain or personal benefit. I commit to conduct that upholds the independence of law enforcement, and preludes improper interference with with investigative and prosecutional decisions of the Department of Justice. I commit to ethical choices of post-government employment that do not raise the appearance that I have used my government services for private gain, including by using confidential information acquiring and relationships established for the benefit of future clients. So I think we're trying to tie up some loopholes, which I think is important. I hope it's not um, going to impact their personal views about what they personally feel is the appropriate thing. I, I just hope that that's not more red tape around a person trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But I do think that by them having that, then they have grounds or means by them signing that document that they'll be held accountable for their actions if they do use confidential information uh, outside of their office and things like that, which I think is important. Yeah. I think it shouldn't have taken this long to get there. But anyways, so that's what I wanted to cover, more or less. Anyway, so uh, let's continue forward in our next section. So filibusters and what it means to you. So I found a good clip on a speedrun about filibusters. So Mike, if you can uh, play that for us.
3: Even if you don't know very much about how Congress works, you've probably heard of the filibuster at least once. It's something everyone who follows politics complains about. It frustrates the majority party in the Senate, and it limits what presidents could accomplish. But how does it work? A filibuster happens when a senator decides to stall a bill being considered by the Senate before the Senate can vote on it to make it a law. The Senate can't vote until it finishes the debate on the bill. Basically, without a filibuster, if 51 senators vote yes on a bill, it passes the Senate. With the filibuster, it takes 60.
0: So... Uh, for the majority, right, it's 51 to 100. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris makes the 51 for a bill. So now mm-hmm. if a filibuster takes place, then there has to be 60, 60 uh, for that to uh,
3: kind of go through on that. Anyways, I thought that was important.
1: Yeah.
3: Equals nine. It used to be that editor had to actually talk while they were filibustering. The record for the longest filibuster of continuous talking was set by Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who spent 24 hours and 18 minutes trying to prevent the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1957. Wow. Why not 24 hours and 19 minutes? Now a senator just has to show up to stop a bill from passing, though the Senate majority leader can require them to actually talk. If 60 senators vote in the debate on a bill, meaning that senators can't speak anymore, then the bill can move forward to the actual vote. This is called a cloture motion. It's French for closure, since it closes debate. As you can imagine, these rules mean pretty much no bills pass just by 51 votes. There is a system to allow more than one bill to be considered at the same time, so every bill behind the one being filibustered isn't also stopped. Budget bills can be passed through a process called reconciliation, which is not nearly as friendly as the name implies. Reconciliation means the budget bill is only allowed to be debated for 20 hours. One issue with reconciliation is that budget bills often have sections that ban or allow money to be spent on something, which is a lot like a law. So things that look like laws and act like laws but aren't called laws can be passed despite not having enough votes, 60, to stop a filibuster. So basically, the Senate is most efficient when it comes to spending money. Big shock. There's also something called the nuclear option, which sounds much cooler than the subject matter deserves. The nuclear option is where the Senate's presiding officer would rule the filibuster unconstitutional as frustrating the requirement of majority rule. Since the Constitution outweighs the Senate's own rules and the filibuster isn't mentioned in the Constitution, this would become the rule until another presiding officer changed it. Decisions by the presiding officer cannot be appealed. Of course, to say that this would be unpopular with a minority party would be putting it mildly. One concern about using it to stop even one specific kind of filibuster would be that eventually the majority could change all the rules of the Senate whenever they wanted, which would be a disaster. And so it remains a largely unconsidered option. And there you have the filibuster.
1: So basically, they're trying to pass a bill. They have to get 51 out of 100 votes mm-hmm. for it to pass. Right. A senator walks in and says, nope, now it needs to be 60. Right. I want it right now.
0: Yep. We're going to hmm. have a the filibuster, then the timer starts, and then they have. 20 yeah. hours. 20 hours to, you know, commiserate, lack of a better term, uh, to come to a resolution, more or less.
1: Hmm. Right. Okay.
0: thought oh, that was interesting. Why that is important, uh, we'll definitely talk about it. Uh, Mike, if you can,
1: start our first paragraph from Reuters. Reuters, um, Washington. A standoff between new U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat. And the man he replaced, Republican Mitch McConnell, over a core rule of Senate operations has kept the two from reaching a deal on how to manage the 50-50 chamber. Schumer is resisting McConnell's demand for a promise to protect the longstanding Senate rule, requiring a supermajority of 60 votes to advance most legislation known as the legislative filibuster. So,
0: um, they're basically trying to change the way that it works. Right? And mm-hmm. see why that would be unpopular. Right? Anyways, thought that was important. Uh, their argument is holding up the basic organization and work of the Senate as it becomes the, the new year with 50 senators from each party. Committees have been reorganized to accommodate new members. Things are on hold. I've got a lot of things I want to do. The senator's number two Democrat. Dick Durbin told reportedly on Thursday, Democrats have the majority in the Senate because the new Vice President, Democrat Kamala Harris, can vote in case of a tie. But she cannot be expected to be there every day to decide every dispute. So Schumer and McConnell started talking earlier this week about a possible power-sharing deal governing daily operations similar to a deal struck two decades ago with the Senate also Had a split 50-50. Mike, any thoughts
1: on that? Trying to follow this. So they are trying to change it, the 60 rule. Right. Uh, But it didn't say what they're trying to change it to. Are they just trying to remove it? Like get rid of filibusters? So so, Connell's trying to remove it. Schumer's trying to keep it. So now they're trying to come to a resolution about power sharing. Pushing for a commitment from Schumer to protect the filibuster. Which some progressive Democrats have suggested should be ditched, so that Democrats can pass their agenda without Republican support.
0: Yeah. So McConnell is pushing for for the commitment from Schumer to protect the filibuster, right? Makes sense. There's a filibuster in there. Uh, I can't see why we shouldn't have it. Isn't an annoying, sure, but I think that having something in place to be obnoxious is fine. Right. Sure. I, I think that if there is no uh, like pit stop for lack of a better term. I think that there would be a lot more things going through and there'd be a lot less um, Regulation in place from it regardless on the the bipartisan right because if left doesn't like it then the right You know gets stopped and then vice versa so anyways, I thought it was interesting that we're talking about removing that filibuster I cannot imagine that the Democratic leader would rather hold up the power-sharing agreement than simply reaffirm that his side won't be breaking the stand rule of the Senate, McConnell said Thursday. Uh, Democrats could unilaterally change the rule to require only a simple majority of legislation to advance if all 50 Democrats plus Harris agree to do so, a gambit sometimes called the nuclear option we talked about, Mike, in recent years, the rules have been changed to allow more judicial and cabinet nominations to advance with a simple majority but not legislation. So I think that's a dangerous road, Mike. Um, I, I think the re- the reason why we have things in place is so we can come to, you know, a reasonable uh, assessment, and I, I think if it's difficult, I think it should be difficult on purpose.
1: If uh, they were, I, I feel like if they were to pull the filibuster ...out of the situation, then, like it says, if they can just get their 50 votes and then pull Kamala Harris and get her vote, then it just... Ta-da! ...they can kind of pass whatever they want. Right,
0: exactly, for sure. Anyways, thought that was important. Schumer is resisting McConnell's demand, telling reporters on Thursday he did not want to... ...did not want any extraneous provisions in the power-sharing deal... Moderate Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin favor keeping the legislative filibuster, but even Manchin supports Schumer sticking to his guns and not making any promises to McConnell, keeping the threat of ongoing nuclear uh, legislation in reserve if Republicans do not work cooperatively. So we recall in that uh, clip, that's going to be extremely unpopular. So he talks about how he wants to work together uh, in a country that's deeply divided, right? Uh, Doesn't seem like doing the nuclear option is going to be very... Doesn't seem like he's going to be working with them. I think that it's going to make a lot of Republicans very upset. Definitely. Probably. Anyways, I guess to finish, Chuck has the right to do so what he's doing. Manchin told reporters this week he has the right to use that to leverage in whatever he wants to do which again, I really don't think is a wise option. I definitely think that um, there should be probably more cooperation with each other. Um, I think that because of this past election, it's really uh, made people polar opposites. Yeah, it's unfortunate, yeah, so. um, Anyway, so uh, moving on, Biden's reconciliation. Now Mike, when you hear reconciliation, what do you think of first?
1: What do you think? Unfortunately, I am a nerd, and I think Truth and Reconciliation from Halo True, The Prophet of Regret. Right, me too.
0: Mike, can you play that clip for us that I have?
1: (laughs) Is this from Halo? Yeah. Oh, it is. How funny. We were on the same page and didn't even know it. Yeah. Anyways, I
0: thought that Mike would appreciate that when we're talking about reconciliation. (laughs) It's going to get, it's kind of crazy, man. Uh, So, Mike, do you remember us talking about that $2 trillion bill a little while ago? I sure do. Well, let's buckle up, because this is what this whole thing is starting about, my friend. Uh, If you can uh, start us off with CNN.
1: When has reconciliation been used before? Reconciliation has been used many times by both parties to pass controversial legislation over the objections of the minority party, including former President Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act in 2010 and Trump's sweeping tax cuts in 2017. How will budget reconciliation be used for the COVID package? Democratic leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer introduced a budget resolution Monday the 1st in a two-step process that will allow the work of writing the coronavirus relief bill in committees to begin. The budget vote now will clear the way of Democrats to potentially pass their relief bill by late February or March after the impeachment impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump is completed in the Senate. Embedded in the budget resolution will be reconciliation instructions for several committees to write legislation Which, in this case, would deal with different aspects of Biden's COVID relief, including funds for vaccines, production and distribution, unemployment insurance, stimulus checks, and more. The formal reconciliation instructions will direct one or more committees to recommended changes to existing law to achieve specified changes in spending, revenues, deficits, and or the debt limit. Instructed committees can comply with their targets by making changes to any of the programs under their dur- jurisdiction, according to the House Budget Committee, which is chaired by Democratic Representative John Yarmouth of Kentucky.
0: Mike, uh, any thoughts on that? From what the budget looks like, or how they're going to do it after the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump? So we're still working on an impeachment trial, right? Right. With Donald Trump. So we're actually holding off this COVID package now after the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, right? That's what it's saying. Pass their relief bill by late February or March after the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. So we're going to have an impeachment trial for yeah. Donald Trump. Yep. And then we're going to have the COVID relief package.
1: Should probably swap those.
0: I. That's what I thought. But I mean, I'm not an expert But anyways, thought that was important. Uh, I don't know if a whole lot of people know that, so I thought that that was worthwhile uh, sharing. So what timetable are Democrats looking at reaching a final package? Uh, The party is mindful that they have to move their legislation by mid-March when enhanced employment benefits for people impacted by the pandemic recession are set to expire. The House would have to pass the budget resolution first and then send its version to the Senate. If the Senate amends it, the House would have to pass it again before the committees uh, could begin its work on the reconciliation instructions. Delayed. Right. Uh, So this is the next part that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is still working to shore up the support from centrists in his caucuses, including Senator Joe Manchin, of West Virginia to ensure that he has 50 votes needed to pass the budget resolution with a tie-breaking vote from Harris. He can't lose one Democrat in his caucus. In the Senate debate on the resolution, we will be limited to 50 hours on the floor. 50 hours, Mike. is that crazy? Yeah. But before a final vote occurs, senators can offer an unlimited number of amendments to the resolution and a process referred to Senate parlance as a... Votorama. Votorama. so like <laughs> we're gonna have 50 hours right I'm imagining like you remember brainstorming when you're a kid you're trying to write as many things down as you possibly can so you got like 50 hours to make as many amendments as you want to with a hundred people in the room <laughs> right <laughs> anyways thought that was kind of silly That's or funny rather unlimited
1: number of <laughs> amendments to whatever <laughs> I mean it could become an entirely different <laughs> bill it could. It certainly could. could be, like, not even related to what it began as. Right. And, okay, Mike, you got a calculator pulled up. Uh, I do in just a second. Got it. So how many, let's see, how
0: how many Americans are there in the U.S.? So let's see what the census says in 2020. So we have 331 million, right? So we got 331 million. We want to do a fourteen hundred dollar bill, right? So, uh, times that by uh, fourteen hundred. Four hundred
1: and sixty-three billion.
0: So four hundred and sixty-three billion. So if you can do uh, two trillion divided by four hundred and sixty-three billion. How many? How much of a percent? I'm sorry, I should have said that. Four, six, Is that six, three, like twenty-five percent? Is that what that accumulates to? Yeah,
1: twenty-three percent. Yeah.
0: So we got twenty-five uh, percent of this bill right? Mm-hmm. For uh, COVID-19 relief. And that's a big push for it, right? But 75% of the rest of that bill is going to everything else. Hmm. So my perspective is, Mike, we could simply just have that bill, we could just do that, instead of, you know, spend 75% more, if that was specifically for that. Um, we'll continue a little bit forward here. Anyways, I thought that was an interesting anecdote. More or less.
1: So continuing in here, uh, this time-consuming and stamina-challenging ritual often stretches past midnight and allows senators through the amendments they offer to highlight issues important to them and try to score political points by forcing politically sensitive votes on their opponents. Right. So what are Republicans saying?
0: Republicans are frustrated that Democrats are threatening to use the aggressive tactics while bipartisan efforts continue... Arguing it would set a partisan tone for the rest of Biden's presidency. So, yeah, it's not quite bipartisan if they use the nuclear option. And then chances are the next election that happens, and people are going to try to you know, change all of that next time. Right. Like we were talking before. Yeah. Anyways, thought that was kind of crazy. Hmm. Um, moving on, I just wanted to have a second source. I like to have second source from things like this. Uh, I did find a pretty reasonable article. I'm not going to go too in-depth with it. Uh, I just wanted to share some key points uh, uh, from what they think and uh, kind of ones that I think as well. So uh, what the key points they have is the House approved a budget resolution Wednesday, which is today, as Democrats move forward with a process that will allow them to pass a $1.9 trillion coronavirus bill without Republicans. That happened today. The Senate is expecting to approve a budget measure later this week to move forward with the reconciliation process, which we just talked about, right? Yep.
1: Uh,
0: Democratic leaders have said they want Republican support for the bill, but the prospect of winning many GOP votes uh, appears very doubtful. Uh, So here's what I thought were some additional key points uh, that they didn't specifically mention. The House passed a budget resolution Wednesday, a key step as Democrats push towards a vote on a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. Approval of the measure allows Congress to move forward with reconciliation through which Democrats can push an aid bill without Republican support. The Senate is expected to approve a resolution later this week. Reflecting the partisan divide over the relief plan, the House passed a resolution and a 218 to 212 vote. Two Democrats voted against it while no Republicans supported it. Once both chambers pass a resolution, Democrats will set up to craft the rescue package they hope to pass in the coming weeks. Using reconciliation, the party uh, can avoid the Senate filibuster and pass a bill with a simple majority. So they're trying to um, go under the filibuster, and use this reconciliation to try to make it go forward faster right anyways mm. thought that was important um so kind of going all over this information uh mike any any uh, takeaways or any thoughts on this
1: i think that there's just uh, always people out there that are going to want power i mean we hear someone trying to take away the filibuster so they can get what they want or other people trying to pass something so they can get what they want and Unfortunately, I think I keep going back to uh, what we talked about in a previous podcast where uh, um, term limits. Yeah. yeah, if we, yeah. Uh, I, uh, I think term limits are kind of a big deal. People kind of get into a little power mode when they've been in a while, and it, and it sounds like some people might be trying to do that. Now, I, I will say maybe there are uh, some very legit reasons for Democrats wanting to kind of pass things under the radar and try and just get things to pass quickly and whatnot, but um, I think, like you said before, unfortunately things seem to be hard left-wing and hard right-wing right now, and there isn't really a good common ground, and and it's unfortunate because I think it, it, in my opinion... Is that it should always be 60 and not 50 because if we can't come to a majority, you know, over the 51, if we can't come to a, a, a conclusion that everyone can more or less agree with, we probably need to work out some more kinks first, yeah, definitely. Yeah,
0: uh, why, yeah, it's like, why are you making it easier for bad policies to go through? I just don't understand that. Also, looking at, um, the COVID-19 relief plan, that relief package, they're still prioritizing that impeachment over um, that COVID-19 relief bill. It's so like we've got people that are really hurting for that and could really use it. And they're just waiting. And now we have to wait for that impeachment trial for us to even move forward with that. So they're saying late February... You know, March. I don't know. It might be longer, I don't which know. is
1: unfortunate because the COVID relief fund. There are people who are needing it, whereas right. other people might be maybe upset and angry about things and want the impeachment to move forward first. But that's not a need. Right.
0: Now let's say that they were making you know uh, minimum wage. They might be a little bit more concerned about sure. getting that passed, but yeah. because you know they have this nice cushion. Like, that's the last thing on, on their minds right now, which kind of sucks, but um, I also think we could have allocated our uh, funds better. Uh, like, when we had that uh, $6.2 trillion bill, you know, earlier uh, last year, uh, and it was set to be determined, right? We yeah. fired two inspector generals. Uh, it, it didn't seem like we had a whole lot of um, management. And so now, you know, we're, we're in the third relief package and that's what like 10 trillion dollars something like that that we're in right now
1: and who knows if it's gonna right. climb higher right
0: i mean now that we've got the the voterrama right we were talking about earlier that, yeah. you know anyways i think it's crazy it's gonna be interesting like maybe grab some popcorn <laughs> when this all happens i don't know uh anyways mike any kind of other last thoughts before
1: we wrap things up no, it's just crazy. Uh, there's a lot of power out there.
0: Yeah, 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 and it's interesting with the executive order that there really isn't a way to eliminate that executive order. Uh, if something crazy, stupid happened like martial law, right? For instance, I mean, they. I guess technically, uh, Congress and Senate could like defund that, but still, like I don't know. That's That's pretty pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, well, all right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it and have a great rest of your night. Thank you for supporting our podcast. If you would like to check out our sources from today's episode, please visit our blog at soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. And if you would like to join the discussion, email us at SoberDiscussions at gmail.com.